Today's sermon is titled, Return of the King. It's taken from Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Today we finish the book of Zechariah. If you've been with us for these past few months, it's been a wonderful journey, seeing how God is going to work in the life of the Jews in the coming end times. I hope this morning wraps it all up for you with a nice little bow and you're able to understand it better. Zechariah is not an easy book to preach or teach or to understand. So would you bow with me and let's ask God to be our teacher. Father, we bow and ask you to guide and direct us in our understanding of this wonderful book. As it looks to the future and shows us the bright hope that there is for tomorrow, the return of the king, What a day. We anticipate it. We look forward to it. Help us, Father, to understand all the intricacies of it so that we might live godly in this present world as we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. What do you know about haiku? I didn't know anything either, so I looked it up on Wikipedia. My Bible. Haiku is a form of Japanese poetry. It's characterized by three things. If you're going to understand it, you need to know these three things. Haiku has 17 syllables that are written in lines of five, seven, and five syllables. In Japanese, haiku is printed in a single vertical line, but in English, it's printed on three parallel lines. Let me ask you this. Is that more than you wanted to know about haiku? Well, just wait, Lucille. As I share this with you, you're probably going to say, Stop! That's more than I wanted to know. But see, here is the problem. If you don't take time to understand what I'm going to speak about, the literal, grammatical, and historical interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, you will never be able to fully grasp its meaning. If I were to ask you, how would you emphasize something in a written composition, how would you go about doing that? You'd have to do it in an obvious visual manner. You might underline whatever it was that you wanted to highlight, indent, italicize, or maybe use a larger font or even a different color. As you can see me behind me on the screen, in ancient Hebrew, they had no such devices to use. And in fact, ancient Hebrew contains no punctuation at all. So for the ancient author to highlight something in the text, he must use a literary device. Now, there are many different types of these devices. They're called chiastic structures. But the most common is the A-B-B-A pattern. That's A-B-B-A, and that's not a Swedish rap group, by the way. The example on the screen shows us that the same concept is repeated a second time, yet it's reiterated in different words. Same thing with B. And the point is to highlight it. In this text that we look at this morning... The author uses an A, B, C, B, A pattern. Again, the A and B texts 
repeat the same concepts in order to highlight or focus the reader's attention on C. The B pattern is repeated, or the A pattern is repeated in verses 1 through 3 in your text, the B pattern in verses 4 and 5. Then you have the focal point of C, which is in verses 6 through 9. And I'm going to go over this again as we go through the text. Then the A pattern is repeated in verses 10 and 11, and the B pattern is repeated again in verses 12 through 15. As I go through it, I think you'll understand. He uses a literary device to underscore the importance of what he is saying in the C, or verses 6 through 9. Now, this literary type of device is quite common in ancient literature. They were used by the Greeks in the epics, like Odyssey and the Iliad. And it's used by the Old Testament authors quite commonly, and also in the New Testament as well. Biblical writers used these devices to highlight and illustrate important details in which they wanted the readers to see. This is the case of an ancient writer stretching the literature, if you will, to convey something that would be mysterious or even fantastic to the readers. It was the only device that the writer had at hand. In our text today, Zechariah, speaking about future events, sees things way beyond his own personal experience or knowledge. Having no way to articulate this or to describe these events, he uses this device to make his point. You'll recall in chapter 13 and 12 and 11, he talked about things that were basically indescribable. He will now move on to describe those things that will take place in the millennium in which a new world is born out of chaos. So he employs this chiastic structure, not as a prequel, nor as a sequel, but he shows the conflict that will take place in the tribulation that we've already looked at in the previous chapters for a very specific reason. Now understand that this is not a complementary vision to what we've already seen about the tribulation in chapters 11 and 12. This is a fuller explanation of that event. Now, unfortunately, some scholarship doesn't understand what the author is doing. They find chapter 14 as being conflicting or contradicting of that which we saw in the previous chapters. Why? Because they don't understand what he is doing through a chiastic structure that is employing. A fuller reality of the events that we've already looked at is seen in the A's and the B's that we will look at. And he blends all of these chapters together to focus on point C, the day of the coming of the Lord. So this is a snapshot, if you will, from different angles of that which we have already looked at and which we see from a different point of view, a different angle, if you will, of the foreground and the background of these coming events. This morning, as I said, we complete our journey through Zechariah's vision of the future. If you have a difficult time imagining these events, just think about how hard it would have been for a Jew in the 5th century, having just returned from bondage in Persia and Babylon, to grasp all of these things. What did they find when they came back to Jerusalem? They found a city totally destroyed, their homes burned, the temple gone, and the people's identity erased. So the prophet 
sharing with them, the exiles, the need to rebuild the city, the temple, and their own personal lives focuses on the future to give them hope. Of course, he's focusing on the Lord. For it is the Lord who will give them hope. The Lord will come alongside of them and help them rebuild the temple. The Lord will come alongside of them and help them rebuild their lives if they are willing to accept his help. So these last, this last chapter forms a complete picture of what we call the day of the Lord or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As with all of the other Old Testament prophets, Zechariah does not record his material in a strict chronological order. That bothers many readers, many interpreters. They oftentimes miss these literary devices, the chiastic pattern that is found here. So it's crucial for you to understand this in order to see the chapter as the author had intended. So let's set down a few ground rules as we begin this last chapter. First, this chapter is entirely prophetic. No part or any of this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the present age in which we live. Secondly, the only interpretive model that can satisfactorily guide us into its understanding is a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic. Any other interpretive model will produce chaos rather than harmony with the rest of Scripture. Those who reject this literal grammatical historical hermeneutic must then necessarily spiritualize or mysticize the text. Those who are Reformed allegorize this text by injecting the church back into the 5th century B.C. How in the world can they see the church in the 5th century B.C.? I don't know. Others simply attempt to explain away the book, saying that its knowledge is unknowable. As a dispensationalist, I see Zechariah focusing upon the siege of Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation during the end times in order to highlight the coming and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, we must not conflate the events of this chapter with the invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., nor should it be linked to the Roman invasion and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Neither of those events fits the model which is necessary to fulfill the details found here of the day of the Lord. Now, one of the great reformers, a theologian, Martin Luther, wrote two commentaries on the book of Zechariah. In his first commentary, he stopped at the end of chapter 13 with no explanation. A year later, he wrote another commentary, and then when he came to chapter 14, he said this, Here in this chapter, I give up. For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. Well, I do not profess to be wiser or smarter than Luther. But then I am not encumbered by a Roman Catholic hermeneutic either. So let's begin our discussion of this text. In verses 1 to 3, we see that there is the great tribulation being fleshed out for us. Zechariah writes, He writes, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. So the first thing that we need to notice is that he uses that phrase again, a day is coming. 
And this refers to the end times. The emphasis, however, is being placed on the Lord rather than is coming. It is the Lord who is coming on this day. And the spoils that we had seen previously taken from the Jews in Jerusalem by the Gentile nations that invaded will somehow be returned. The phrase, a day is coming, denotes that this is a time of judgment and of the Lord's intervention. We are going to see that repeated. He will intercede in the affairs of man to judge the nations of the world. This must happen before he can return a second time. Listen to the voices of the other prophets who speak of this same day. Isaiah wrote, Wail for the day of the Lord. It is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate sinners from it. And the prophet Ezekiel likewise wrote, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And then Joel Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. We've seen all of this in the previous chapters of Zechariah, but now we get a bit of a different angle here. Earlier, the emphasis was on the deliverance for the, for the Jews in the midst of the tribulation. This was written by Zechariah in order to, to um, encourage the Jews in his present day in the midst of their difficulties. But here we see the focus is on how horrifying the day of the Lord will really be. It's going to be a time of doom, darkness, destruction, and hopelessness. It is the siege of Jerusalem, that which we've already seen in the previous text. When the city is stripped of its wealth and all kinds of humiliations are inflicted upon its inhabitants, the Gentile nations sweep in and defeat the Jews, and begin to set up a one-world government. Now, the prophet Zechariah describes this happening just before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the battle of Armageddon. The unbelieving Gentile nations siege and then destroy the city. But here we find what I would like to call a rope-a-dope tactic being used by the Lord. He makes all of the rest of the day of the Lord possible by doing this. For we read in verse 2, I will gather, for I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, and the the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off for that day. Notice that all of this that takes place in the tribulation is done at the behest of the Lord. He says, I will gather, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. The day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon, the sacking of Jerusalem, the carrying off of half the population is done at the behest of the Lord. The question is why? Why would the the Lord allow the enemies of God to attack Israel? The answer is pretty simple, really. It will be done in order to purify the Jewish people and also to judge their enemies. So God draws the Gentile armies to Israel in order to deliver a death blow upon them. This battle will change everything. Look with me in verse 3. Then, an important word showing sequence, then the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations as when he fights on a day of battle. 
It is when things look the darkest for Israel that the Lord comes and he fights for his people. This is a vivid picture of our deliverer coming to join the fight. The phrase that's used here, go forth or go out, maybe in your Bible in verse 3, go out, go forth to battle, that's a technical term was, which was always used of kings going out to battle the enemy. So where does the Lord go forth here? It tells us exactly in verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its form, from the middle, east to west, by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will be moved towards the north and the other half towards the south. Here we have a picture of the geographical upheaval that will be accompanying his coming. It says that on the day of the Lord, once he descends, he will come to the Mount of Olives and his feet will touch down there. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. Notice it doesn't say Mount Zion. It doesn't say the Temple Mount. It doesn't say Nazareth or Bethlehem. It's the Mount of Olives. Did you know that this is the first time this is mentioned, this place is mentioned in the Bible? It won't be the last. For when we go to the New Testament and after Jesus Christ passed away and rose again, he went to this place with his disciples and he ascended to his father. We read of this in Acts chapter 1. I'm sure you probably have read it yourself and know of it. We, re- we read beginning there, and I believe it's verse 6. After he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of, his, out of their sight. And as they were gazing into the sky intently, he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing, these are angels, stood behind, beside them and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the exact same way you have watched him go into the heavens. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Wow. What a vivid picture of the personal, visible, bodily, and literal Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's promising the exact same thing when he returns to the exact same place. He left for heaven from here and he's going to return to earth from this very same, at this very same place. Notice that the Mount of Olives is on the east side of the city. And this, this text tells us that the valley will be split at this point. The Mount of Olivet is a large ridge. And if you go with us next June, you'll see it for yourself. We'll stand there. It is a a mountain ridge that runs two and a half miles north to south on the east side of Jerusalem. It separates Jerusalem from the Kidron Valley. The mount is 250 feet higher in elevation than the Temple Mount and the city. So... You can stand on the Mount of Olives and you can literally look down into the city of Jerusalem and into the Temple Mount area where the Mosque of Akas is there and the uh, Dome of the Rock is there as well. This mount, Mount of Olives, blocks any view eastward and it also is an impediment to anyone that might be trying to flee from the city of Jerusalem. So what happens is Jesus touches down and there is a some kind of a geographical movement, and a a wide split is 
created, as we say in Sunday school, deep and wide, right? Where the city used to be is now all spread out as a plain. Ezekiel speaks of the same thing in his book saying, You, those in Jerusalem, will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled from an earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the king, excuse me, then the Lord my God will come with all his holy ones. That's verse 5. Here is the reason for the splitting of the Mount of Olives. The people will need a root to escape the coming chaos. In talking about this, Zechariah compares it to another event, an event that's unfamiliar to many of us, but very familiar to those that lived in Jerusalem at this time. He says that a time 20, 100 years before this, do you remember it when there was a great earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah? And in fact, it's recorded for us in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos when he saw visions concerning Israel in the day of Uzziah, the king of Judah, two years before the earthquake. So this population in Israel is very familiar with the earthquake. And Zechariah is saying, a day is coming in which the mountain will split. Just like that day, the world's going to shake. Remember here in the year 2000 when we had our big Nisqually earthquake? Much like that, except much more damage, much more physical changes. Notice that when Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, he's coming with someone. He's coming with his holy ones. John, the revelator, says that after the rapture, he writes this in the book of Revelation, he sees the heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages wars and the armies which are in heaven, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. He comes with his holy ones. This is the time of the completion of the time of the Gentiles. Jesus told us about this. He warned of this in Luke chapter 21, saying, They will fall by the edge of the sword, that's the great tribulation, and will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until, circle, highlight that world, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So Jerusalem falls to the invading Gentile armies. Some are taken captive and carried off, and the times of the Gentiles are completed. Paul writes about this as well in Romans chapter 11. When he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. I don't want you to be uninformed about this mystery. There is a personal hardening that has happened to Israel. They've rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior since he came the first time. There's been this partial hardening. He says, until the fullness of time of the Gentiles has come and all Israel will be saved for the deliverer will come. There it is right there. It couldn't be clear. When the time of the Gentiles is complete, the deliverer comes. The Lord Jesus Christ returns to Jerusalem, puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, and the mountains spread apart. There will also be other geographical changes. Some in the heavens, 
There will be no illumination from the heavens. We read in verse 6. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Now, some see this as meaningless or unknowable. Others say the Hebrew text is too difficult to interpret. But I think it's pretty crystal clear. These cosmic events, these cosmic signals, these will light down instead of light up that the Lord is returning. The Shephelah, the low mountains around Judea, will be flattened and the lights will go out literally. These are ideal conditions for the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Look with me at verse 7. This will be a unique day, really. (laughs) That's what it says. This will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about in the evening that there will be light. I don't get it, do you? Well, as you might know, there was light on the earth before the creation day in which the sun was put in place and the moon and the stars. The Lord actually lit it up. He himself, his person was the light. And on this day, he will provide light. Now, understand that doom and gloom always come with cataclysmic events. So the lights go out, the sun darkens, the stars don't shine. Do you remember when Jesus died on Calvary? The lights went out. The world darkened. Other prophets see this too. Isaiah says, for the, sun, excuse me, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Joel says much the same thing. Before the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Don't you love it when the Bible's consistent? I was hoping for an amen there. But all those people must be out of town on vacation. (laughs) Immediately before the Lord comes, he tells us in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, immediately after the tribulation, oh gosh, I love it, can't get any clearer. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The exact same thing Zechariah says. Wow. No light show. Becomes all dark. But the Lord lights up the world. Notice in verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. And it will be as in summer as well as in winter. The Jews always hoped for water. They dreamed of an abundant water supply for Jerusalem. They dug all over the place. I've been down in some of those shafts. Hezekiah's tunnel, for one. But in the millennium, rivers of living water will flow in Jerusalem. The picture here is of gushing water, not emanating from a cistern, a spring, or a river. No, this water is coming from some unknown source. And there's so much water that it's flowing all the way to the Dead Sea in one direction and the Mediterranean in the other. The water that they hoped for, God's going to provide during the millennium. It will be abundant, and we learned here it'll be year-round. 
As I said, they've never had an adequate water supply before in Jerusalem, but now there will be one. It will be living water. It will be flowing abundantly throughout the city. I believe Jesus might have even had this in mind when he talked to the woman at the well. Do you remember he asked her, do you want water? What kind of water? I come to bring living water. And she said, water, yeah, I'll take it. I don't want to have to lug this jug around anymore on top of my head. Give me water. But she was thinking literally of water out of a well. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So I believe that there's probably a reference to both spiritual water and real water. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 47, we read of this river of living water. In Jerusalem, when he says, Then he brought me to the back door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, and the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under the right side of the house from the south of the altar. He led me through the water, water reaching the ankles, water reaching the loins, water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And Isaiah said the same thing. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Then the lame will leap, the mute will shout for joy, for the waters will break forth in the wilderness, and the scorched land will become a pool and a thirsty ground for the springs of water. And Amos writes, Behold, days are coming when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved, and I will destroy the captivity of my people in Israel, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards, and their wine and their gardens will grow and they will have fruit. In the millennium, they're going to have all the water they need. They're going to have unbelievable lush terrain. Trees are going to be filled with the fruit. There's going to be tomatoes the size of beach balls, just like the promised land was intended to be. Notice in verse 9, the unmistakable reason for this. Verse 9 says that the Lord will be king over the earth. Is the Lord king over the earth now? No. The morons. Sorry. The people who say Jesus is reigning in your heart. I'm sorry. That's not this. The Lord will reign over the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name will be the only one. Here we have set before us the king reigning over the whole earth, not just a few million hearts of believers. This reign will be universal. When he takes over in that day, it will be taking over the whole earth. It will be his kingdom As John the Revelator spoke of again in the book of Revelation, those who wage war against the Lamb, the Lamb lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And on his robe and on his thigh, there's a name written, King of kings. Jesus Christ is going to reign over this earth literally from Jerusalem. For a thousand years. And those who have been chosen and faithful to him will rule with him. That time hasn't come yet. I'm not mayor over Lacey yet. But it is coming. 
It's coming. Yeah, I got to set my eyes higher than Lacey. John writes in chapter 21 of Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God will be among them. That hasn't happened yet. The Lord ain't reigning yet, is he? He's not king over nothing yet. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and me. He's not king over anything yet. But there's a day coming when he will be literally the king over the earth. And he will be the only one that's worshipped. He's the one true God. No Allah, no Mohammed, no other gods but Jesus. This is talked about repetitively in the Old Testament. There are those royal psalms that people don't know what to do with. How about, about Psalm 93, 97, and 99? Let me just take a few snippets from you to make my point. The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The Lord reigns and the earth rejoices. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries around him. His lightnings light up the world. The earth saw and trembled. That's the tribulation. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord on the earth. The heavens declared his righteousness, and all the people saw his glory. Worship him, all ye gods, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. Exalt our Lord, our God, and worship him from his holy hill, for the Lord God is our God. Jesus Christ will reign literally from Jerusalem. We will worship him there. But that day has not yet come. He is not enthroned over this whole world. We're still dealing with puny and petty dictators like we have in Washington, D.C. right now. Notice the extent of his reign, the extent of his holy city in verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise, now here's the important, will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hanal to the king's wine presses. Here he returns to his outline. Dan, Dan, can you put up that, um, the graphic that you, uh, A, B, C, B, A. We saw this in verses 1 through 3, the judgment and the Lord's intervention. We saw the graphic upheaval. We've just looked at the millennial ideal conditions for Christ as king. He's returning now to graphic upheavals, and he's going to repeat in the Lord's intervention, which seem out of order. But if you understand this is a chiastic structure, his point is right here, 6 through 9. He wanted you to make a bullseye to these Four verses and focus in on them. This is the millennial kingdom. Now, for chiastic purposes, he returns to a discussion of the tribulation. This is what has confused people that have studied this, this text. What is going on here? Is there another war? No. 
he's using a chiasm to highlight verses 6 through 9. So we see his return of the geographical upheavals caused by his coming. This is the start of the close of the chiasm. Jerusalem rises up over the land as surrounding hills, and the city is like a cube hovering over the land, if you will. These typographical, typographical changes will take place in Jerusalem in preparation for the city to be the capital of the millennial kingdom. Listen to the words of Isaiah. It will come about in the last days, The mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountains, and here it is, and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. The mountain splits in two. The tremendous valley that lies between it will be smoothed out. The city, the holy city, will be elevated and lifted up and enlarged, as you know from the book of Revelation. And that's why it's mentioned north, south, east, and west, these designations. Jerusalem will become the most prominent city on the planet because the Lord Jesus will rule from his capital there. Now, verse 11. People will again live in it, and there will be no longer a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. The curse that has been on the Jews will be lifted. The land will accept her king following the tribulation. Never again will they need to be afraid. They will dwell in peace and safety. It won't be like living in Chicago or Orlando. In the millennium, King Jesus will rule and there will be peace, prosperity, and goodwill for all men. Now the next four verses, 12 through 15, there is a parenthetical flashback. That's what I've been talking about. That's, again, to close the chiasm in the reader's mind. It's a description of the attack by Jerusalem, the judgment and the Lord's intervention, as I previously mentioned. Notice in verse 12, this plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Again, this is a return to the tribulation. And their flesh will rot and they will stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. Terrible, huh? Sounds horrible. The Lord will fight the Gentile nations in the tribulation by attacking the people and placing a plague upon the people. And people will die. The Lord executes his vengeance on the unbelieving Gentiles who have attacked Israel by causing in that day, verse 13, a great panic from the Lord. And it will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hands, and the hand of the one will be lifted up against the hand of another. You see here, this is not the millennium. This is a return to discussion of the tribulation. All of the ugliness that had been suffered by Israel, by the Gentile armies, will be done over with because there's a supernatural confusion brought on them, a panic. And everything that had been taken from them will be returned, according to verse 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding Gentile nations, that's the idea here, will be gathered, the gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. The Lord will give back to them the plunder which had been taken from them when the armies had attacked during the Battle of Armageddon. The plague will render the armies on fighting, their fighting ability over, and the panic will ensue and they will run. Now verse 15. So also like this plague, there will be a plague on their horses. Sorry, Kayla. The mule, 
the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle will be in their camps. So all the animals belonging to all the invaders of the Gentile nations will suffer the same fate as their masters. Maybe this is speaking about their pets. I don't know. We don't use horses today to fight, do we? We use tanks and other things. But certainly, this verse will tick off the ACLU and the SPECA, right? The animal rights group. Okay? Don't you love those commercials where you see the dogs and they're shaking? And they're, they're emaciated from no food? Some people care more about animals than they do about unborn babies, don't they? Here we see that the animals will be afflicted as well. Now, Zechariah, completing the, the uh, chiastic structure that was up on the screen a moment ago, is now finished with that, and he will return to speaking of the millennial kingdom. And he says the millennial kingdom will be holy. Look with me at verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, of all the armies, of all the nations, anybody who's left, will go up to Jerusalem from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Isn't that awesome? No? Oh, okay. All of those left alive that haven't been killed by the panic, the plague, and they're not a pet, they're going to be allowed to go back to Jerusalem to worship the king. All people will celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. There will be a fundamental transformation of the world. I'm mimicking you-know-who. Jesus moves from judgment to blessing. The conflicts of the tribulation and the great tribulation are over and done with. It's accomplished its purpose. It's brought the Jewish nation to believe. All Jews are saved, according to Paul, chapter, chapter 11 in, in the book of Romans. And they are joined by a remnant of Gentiles from the nations of the world. They will all enter into the millennial kingdom as its citizens. Now, as you know, the Feast of Tabernacles is a time that was devised by the Lord for the people to remember his return of them to Israel and to give thanks. Israel celebrated this after their return uh, from Egypt, or their re- coming from Egypt to, um, to uh, Israel, and they also celebrated it after their exile and their return. Nehemiah explains this for us in Nehemiah chapter 8, saying, It is written in the law, this is Moses, how the law had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel to live in booths during the feast of the seven months. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all the cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go to the hills and bring out olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. So the people went out brought them, made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of their houses of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. They'd stopped celebrating it. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first to the last and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to ordinance. 
The first celebration after they returned to Israel and then celebrated after the return from their exile was this Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. They would bring the wheat and the barley that God had blessed them with in the first harvest and they would celebrate his greatness by living in booths, remembering how when they desperately needed to trust in the Lord that he provided for them. Now, it's not just the Jewish remnant that is doing it, but all of the Jewish remnant plus the Gentiles saved during the tribulation will come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the ultimate realization of the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus Christ is the ultimate realization of the purpose of that feast. But there's a question. What if some people choose not to participate in this feast? What if they don't want to come up to Jerusalem once a year? Look at verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, that there will be no rain upon them. Do you recall we just spoke of the living water that was flowing in Jerusalem? One of the blessings of the kingdom and one of the rituals during the Feast of Tabernacles was to take water and pour it out in gratefulness to God. God will cut off this blessing from people who refuse to worship him. He is the provider of them and he can stop them as well. So disobedience in the millennial kingdom will be dealt with by God. Now you're saying, well, why would they do that? Why would they not want to go up to Jerusalem and worship God? Because you must realize that the people that go into the millennial kingdom are regenerated, but they are not glorified. And regenerated people will have bare children will be born that are not regenerated. And they will rebel against God. They still possess the old nature, which is in opposition, which is in rebellion against God. Verse 18, and if the family of Egypt doesn't go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be a plague with which God smites the nations who do not, do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. God deals specifically here with Egypt because of Egypt's historical issues with uh, Israel. Plus also, I believe the idea here is that Egypt might not need his water since the Nile floods every year and provides them rich and fertile crops. So there wouldn't be any uh, need for uh, water. So God says, I'm going to smite them with a plague. They might believe that they have no need to worship the king. This attitude is prevalent from the Garden of Eden all the way through the millennial kingdom. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us so. In Revelation chapter 20, we read this. About the very end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, he says, when the thousand years are completed, <laughs> so are these real years or are these just a figure? I say they're real years, don't you? When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were also and they will be tormented forever day and night so all the way through the millennial kingdom there will be acts of rebellion against the king and in verse 19 now we read this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Do you ask your children, do you want to go to church today or would you rather stay home? Do you ever do that? In the Millennial Kingdom, there's no option whether or not you want to go worship the Lord in Jerusalem. You see, if they don't want to go, there's consequences. It's the same in every age. From the beginning of time to the end of the millennium, even during the age of grace, you really don't have a choice. You've been commanded to worship the Lord, and there are consequences if you don't. But those consequences heighten when there's a theocracy, when the Lord is ruling. The consequences will be quick. The nation will forfeit its Ability to continue to live. Any nation that fails to meet God will meet with disaster. God intends that we worship him. After all, we've been bought with a price. He paid for us. We were bought lock, stock, and barrel. The millennial kingdom is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when he said that all of the nations of the earth will Worship him like stars in the sky, like sand on the seashore. Here they have the visible bodily presence of the king. And what are they doing? I don't want to go worship. I want to stay home. There are consequences for that. You see, the human heart is a cesspool of rebellion against God. Notice in verse 21, 20 and 21. Now, I want you to notice this. If you have your pen, your highlighter, look at the beginning of verse 20. It begins with, in that day. Now look at the end of verse 21, and it ends with, in that day. That's called a bookending device in literature. He's opening and closing it. This is one unit together when he says, in that day there will be inscribed on the bell of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. In that day, there's a day coming during the millennium when the world will be characterized by three things. The horse with bells no longer will be a war horse. The house, all of its utensils in the holy house, house and your house will be holy unto God. Life will be characterized by peace and safety. Life under the king will be holy. All of man's activities in public life, in private life, and in religious life will be holy. That's the point here. All will be holy unto the Lord. You remember what the uh, high priest had printed on his, his headset, his hat? Holy to the Lord. Here we see that same thing. All Israel, all the nations of the world will be holy in their public life, in their religious life, and in their private life. 
Now, there's one more thing we need to deal with here, and that's the last part of verse 21 where it says, And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. You should immediately think to the house of God. This is my father's house. This is my house. Remember? Jesus drove out the money changers. They were called Canaanites. They were in the house of God to make money. They were not there to make it holy. They were there to sell their wares. So Jesus drove them out. In the coming age, there will be no profaning of the Lord's house or anything else. For the Lord will deal with the Canaanite in that day. So, we've been talking about war on earth. With all the nations coming and gathered against Israel. God's spirit moves and the realization sweeps through Israel that Jesus Christ is the promised one, the one whom they pierced. The foreign forces gathered to crush Jerusalem and the Lord appears with his saints and he sets up his kingdom to rule over the world for a thousand years. This text has provided us a great service to our understanding of the future events. It's a compliment, however, to the book of Daniel. Daniel, as you know if you've studied it, gives all of the details of God's program from a Gentile perspective. We learn from Daniel all the things that will take place during the time of the Gentiles to the Gentiles. But Zechariah gives us all of those details from a Jewish perspective. This book provides encouragement not only for the people in Zechariah's day, but the people in the tribulation that God is bringing to a consummation all of those things that he had promised to them. Well, what does this book mean to you and me? How can we take this specific text and apply it to ourselves? What about all this apocalyptic language and these prophecies? What does that mean to us in the 20th century? To read these verses as a series of mysterious predictions, to try to flesh them out in the light of the evening news, I think is to miss the point. These prophetic words speak to our day. They bring us hope and they remind us that God has a plan that he's going to fulfill. But the language being prophetic is a difficulty, presents a difficulty to understand. Why? Because it's such a dark and bleak picture of the things that must take place before hope comes. you got to hit rock bottom before the Lord can do anything. And to some, they find this as an impossibility to overcome. Prophetic thought in liberals' minds is an impossibility to understand. But to us, who believe that God has got a program for Israel... It brings us hope. So how can we apply this to us, to our lives? It begins by not neglecting the Lord, not neglecting his word. Here we find all sorts of high and lofty thoughts about the future. We should not fall victim to the gloominess of the tribulation, but remember beyond that there is coming victory. We should also remember that God is going to deal with the world and the way that they've treated his chosen people, and that there will be a remnant who believe because God has promised it in his word. Finally, this is a call to action for you and me as believers. Don't 
become obsessed with prophetic literature as some in the church do today. Prophecy was not meant to lay out a schematic for us to memorize and to understand all the little details. It was meant to give us hope in dark days. Prophecy imparts hope. And so therefore, we must study it and understand it, but not become obsessed with it. Finally, we live in a time of uncertainty. So we must understand that history is moving towards a climax. When that will be, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But we are not to be bystanders just watching it all take place. We are called to be change agents in this world. So as we see history take place and unfold, we can share with those around us the things that we know. And we know this. The Lord is coming. Are you prepared? When it will happen, I have no idea. It could be today, tomorrow, next week. I don't know. It could be in a thousand years. But I know this. I'm supposed to be prepared and telling others to be ready. Are you ready? I trust that you are. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the book of Zechariah. We thank you, Lord, that we have a better understanding of your plan, not only for Israel, but for the church. Help us, Father, to apply that to our lives, to be hopeful people, to remember that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, will one day be king, and we will be his subjects. Help us, Father, to live lives of faith and trust until he returns, that we might receive a great reward for our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.